Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tribe Call Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Ow! Hello, and welcome to the Talk House Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. On this week's episode, we've got the Scottish singer and songwriter behind some of the catchiest songs of the past two decades, along with the super producer who helped bring those songs into the world, Fran Healy and Nigel Godrich. Healy is the singer, guitarist, and chief songwriter of the band Travis, which broke big with 1999's The Man Who, scoring mainstream hits with songs like Why Does It Always Rain On Me and Turn. They've since created a deep catalog that now numbers nine albums. But for today's purposes, we're going to concentrate on 2001's The Invisible Band, which Travis is giving a belated 20th birthday celebration for at the moment, including a U.S. tour that starts this week. It can be difficult to follow up a massive success like The Man Who, and Travis turned again to Godrich to help them chart the proper course. It wasn't the beginning, but rather the continuation of a long and fruitful band-producer relationship. Check out a little bit of Sing from The Invisible Band. Now, Godrich, by the time Invisible Band came around, had already found massive success as the producer of Radiohead's OK Computer, and of course he would go on to be the sort of unofficial sixth member of that band, recording all of their albums post-OK Computer, and even playing music with Tom York in the band Adams for Peace. As you'll hear in this conversation, Godrich had some solid advice for Healy heading into the Invisible Band, though it's not necessarily advice he would give anymore. Beyond his work with Radiohead and Travis, Godrich has also produced classics by Beck, including Mutations and Sea Change, plus Air and Arcade Fire and Roger Waters. The list goes on. In this chat, the two old friends talk about their state of mind and state of life back when they commenced recording The Invisible Band in Los Angeles. They talk about Godrich's recent revelatory experience seeing the Pavement reunion tour. He also produced that band's swan song, Terror Twilight. There's even a story in here about a baby goat peeing in a very expensive guitar case. Enjoy. Hi, Nigel. Hey, man. I love you. I love you too. So is this the, is this the podcast? This is a fucking great podcast. This is the podcast. This is it. So what else? You go next. I saw Pavement last night. Mm. And? And they are like the Beatles of um, indie rock. You know yeah. what I mean? They are the greatest band. It was like, it's such a great show because it's just all the songs, you know, all the songs are so great. And I, you know, got to see Steve properly, which was really cool. Got to see all of them. It was right, oh. it was lovely. I mean, it was really, really lovely, quite moving because they're just having, they're just so happy to be doing it. And even, yeah. um, I think Steve seems happy too. And yeah. in the crowd of, fucking nuts for it and they're also very young i know the crowd which is what i really loved that's fucking great man yeah they were they were yeah they were great they are the fucking beatles of and it's like a sort of greatest hit you know they really sort of every tune you're like oh my god i'm so happy to hear this oh my god i'm so happy to hear this and they played everything and they did it all right and it was great it's like the like you take a classic 
song where you recognize lyrics and and then you put it through this weird decoder that just sort of scrambles everything then you get a pavement song and you think at the time <laughs> when you listen to it you think at the time what you know um lip gloss on watery clay like what, what a mm-hmm. lyric right so mm-hmm. relationships hey hey, hey 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 you kiss like a rock <laughs> like you okay, kiss like enough. a rock no but it's, <laughs> it's amazing you think it's so abstract and so but he's got the melodies and and then suddenly you go and see them 20 years later and it's like these songs have just sort of they've um it's like you pull them out of the oven it's like they've they've risen you know it's funny i was just saying how everything currently i think we're living in an era of retrospective <laughs> basically everything is backwards looking it really does feel like that at the moment and even like the pavement show whatever you know it's like you know that last record was made at the same time as the man who literally at the same time I was with them and I was with you and we were like you know that's how you guys kind of met and everything it's like family old family photos you know and you take a picture and you're like oh god I look fucking terrible in that <laughs> and then 25 years later they sort of they gain this sort of value as the older they get the kind of more sort of you know important documents they are and those yeah the pavement songs just amazing i mean the thing is steve is an amazing songwriter he's a pop writer you know and he can get away with things because it's pavement and he just sort of in a way sort of hides behind the kind of sloppiness really but it's nothing seems cheesy but it's very 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 kind of chiseled and arranged and the arrangements are really fucking tight actually yeah so i don't know if he would agree with that but i that's my subjective view of watching them play you know gold sounds and cut your hair Mm. and you know trigger cut and like, i mean mm-hmm. there's just so many fucking great little pop songs basically yeah and then they had some fantastic like long form wig outs as well that were just like you know it was just great just the whole thing because they had that whole span over their career and actually it's like one of those bands like the beatles where it's sort of quite sort of you know it's like eight albums or seven albums or something even less probably so yeah you know as usual i got in at the end of it so yeah um the invisible band the invisible band actually so you got you start I don't remember any of it, actually. That's my... I remember... I do remember everything. I remember all of it. <laughs> so be warned. There are standout moments and and good bit, good bits and bad bits, but let's just talk about the good bits. The good bits, I remember, are all the social parts of it. There was a pendulum that swung, you know, you went... We went into the studio at, at around about 10 to midday. or mid, Was it midday? Yeah, maybe, yeah. And then yeah. the pendulum would swing across to the other side, which was nightlife and going to the bar Marmont and just chilling out and having a laugh and mm. going for dinner and just having fun. In the in the, the this lovely point in everyone's lives where, you know, we, none of us had children. We were, you know, Travis would just like fucking going mental bananas with the man who you're like mental bananas with your thing. I remember I was walking out on that first day and you tell, just being very frank with me and saying like, um, look mate, there's no point in fucking going in here and just making, we have to make it better than the last record. It has to be better than the last record. It has to sound better than the last record. And in every department be better than. And I felt quite confident because I knew we had like, I had a couple of like good ideas, like good songs in, in, you know, in, in my back pocket. And um, the other thing you said before we went into the studio was don't make demos, Franny. Let us make, just let's keep that for the studio. Just have it on the guitar because then we're all surprised by what we come up with. Is there a reason why you said that? (laughs) Apart from the obvious. Well, all of these sort of retrospective things are interesting because 
we're talking about something like 23 years ago, really, is what we're talking about at the start of it, where in the last 23 years, I mean, I've, you know, done a lot of stuff and my feelings have changed. And you're telling me about a person I was 23 years ago and what I told you and what I told you to do, which I sort of, I can remember why I thought that, but I don't necessarily agree with it anymore. I think actually what happened in those intervening 23 years is I spent too long in a recording studio with people without any songs trying to write songs in the studio <laughs> which I think is actually a lot it's a it's a lot a lot of time wasted and um the best well, you I'm realizing see... with perspective yeah I did I did I'm just saying explaining that like with perspective I understand now that um it's the best stuff it's better when you have a song that you've written and you can sort of and I guess what I was trying to say was you have to be able to sit down and play on a guitar first yeah that's what you you have the song but don't have it all demoed up and you know like the first album you'd done demos mm -hmm. and the demos were quite sophisticated and i think that they kind of curtailed an aspect of creativity slightly just in the way that it's, it's like doing demos means like you know get the arrangement down with like basic instrumentation and everything's there and whatever it's quite funny as a producer sometimes you get sent demos that just sound finished i mean they sound yeah. like finished productions and it's like even though you might say well that's i don't think this is the best production for this song and that's why someone has sent you a demo to kind of discuss about how you would do it differently the fact that it's it's realized in a certain form kind of puts the kind of handcuffs on it's like you've heard it that way and you'll never unhear it you know so so i think i was probably trying to stop that from happening in this process because you're hitting the ground running and you'd been on tour and you'd been playing stuff and I knew you had new songs and we had sort of recordings of them in soundcheck and stuff like that so you know that was the kind of bare bones of it and there was a lot of other stuff that needed to happen and obviously I think that what happened was and what I remember happening was we did an initial stint in, in LA because I'd been doing so much work there and it worked so well I I thought that it would be a great way to get everybody away and get everyone together in a different place and have an adventure. And you would feed off of that adventure, you know, and we did do that for a while. And then we actually ran out of song, ran out of songs. So we went back to London to work again. And then what happened was you got sent back to LA to write more on your own. And we joined you afterwards. That's what I remember. So it was like a little, you know, addendum because it had worked so well that going back to reality, you go to Oz for a bit, you know, and it's like, wow, this is, this is amazing. And that's the social aspect. I mean, I think the other thing, when I did those little liner notes for this reissue, I sat and listened to the record, which I hadn't done for a long, long time. Yeah, me too. I got like a, a perspective that I hadn't had for a while, which, which, which I never, never had. And what I could hear was um, like a bunch of people, like young people who were sort of growing. I could hear the sort of joy and discovery of life. You know, that was what was charming about it. It was like, uh, or it, maybe it just could superficially for me reminded me of that time. We were just, uh, you know, pretty much kind of living the fruits of our labors and getting to a point where we were free to do all these things that were very exciting. And to be able to go to another country and work in a place like that, it was very exciting. And we made a lot of friends on that record and we made, we had a lot of fun, you know, doing it, which, which comes through, I think. Yeah. I feel older now. <laughs> Do you know what it is, man? I think it's having kids. But I only just had kids. Yeah, I know. But if you get the flu, you can only just get the flu, but you still feel it. You know, it hits you like a fucking, like, it's like a, cha a massive change in temperature or a massive change in life. Where your mind is spring-loaded to just spring into doing the thing that you're doing now. And I've, I've been doing for the last 16 years. Before yeah. that, you were you were fathering, you were birthing, you were doula, you were like a fucking song doula. 
you know, you were like mm. birthing these these things into the world that, that went out. And I mean, every night we go out and we play them. And I'm still to this day just bowled over by the 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 what songs do to people. It's like a fucking mm. it's it's a cure. It's uh something magic going on. Something I'm sure in about a thousand years some physicist will figure out. Yeah. I believe they'll never work it out. <laughs> yeah. But that's that's in a great way. I'm happy. I feel like <clears> there's no sort of advancing technology that's ever gonna I mean, it's been claimed many times, hasn't it? It's like, oh, we've invented an algorithm that can write songs. It's like, well, <laughs> not quite, you know. Actually music is a good sort of illustration of how little we know about how our brains work. Mm. You know, we can claim to sort of uh yeah, use the for the words artificial intelligence, which I think is, is a big misnomer. Mm-hmm. but the truth is people don't really understand why music affects us emotionally the way that it does and people don't really understand why we have emotions and that's what makes us who we are and music as an art form is so intangible and weird and it's sort of divine isn't it it's just uh and that's the thing you're talking about is when you watch somebody being affected by song specifically you know like words and melodies and rhythm and stuff it's it's really you can't bottle it you know I mean, we've learned how to record, we, we learned how to sort of record it in inverted commas. That thing in itself has been like this cause of this crazy sort of blip in human development, which ultimately is the story of rock and roll. When you say bottle it, it's the word it. Like, what the fuck is it? <laughs> and it's the thing, it's the mystery. It's the thing that you'll never let you say, you'll never ever know, you'll never ever work out, you'll never ever find it. In a sense, songs are the closest maybe that we've come to bottling it in some way that you can like carry it around like a flame you know like that that film quest for fire you know like when they're running around with a flame that's the and you pass it on to everyone else it's like say that the analogy of bottling it is making an album managing to kind of capture this thing and and uh and then it's it's like here Mm -hmm. you you can you can pass it to someone else you can communicate it to somebody Mm -hmm. else and it's reproducible Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the TalkHouse podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of TalkHouse is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. More than a million artists use DistroKid, and the latest version of their app is better than ever. It includes features that make it easy to see your account details, including the money you've earned, as well as to seamlessly edit things like lyrics and metadata across platforms. There's even a feature called Instant Share, which allows you to easily share files with your bandmates, booking agent, playlist curators, and more. DistroLock allows you to protect your songs. DistroKid users get a YouTube official artist channel, too. The list goes on. The DistroKid app is available on iOS and Android. Go check it out today. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network.
I just had discovered this amazing situation at this particular studio in Los Angeles where I'd worked with Beck. And I knew, which I just knew the mutations, which I knew was going to, was just like a fertile ground, you know? And I just thought, I know that Fran would be up for doing this, doing mm. this here. So that's why I was like, let's go. Honestly, just trust me. Let's go to this place. That room was really interesting. You know, the room where you, the, the control room. Yeah. Was a very interesting. I remember sitting listening to our favorite songs and favorite albums, whatever, in that room. Like you could hear where they they'd cut it, you know, they could hear, and you never heard that before. But yeah. that room, that room kind of showed up all those things. So it's the definition of what a good, good control room in a studio is really like a good listening space because it showed up. It put things that were good in a bad light, which is great because that means that anything you make is, is, will end up looking good outside of that situation. It was a very weird room. It was very small. Yeah. We could only just fit in there. But I mean, that sort of added to the vibe really, you know, but I mean, I remember like, uh, it just was really fun to be around you guys. It was like a real brush of fresh air. And I sort of really subscribed to the idea of like bands being bands because they're sort of like a little group of people that you want to you want to hang out with you know what i mean it's like you know whatever you say about the beatles and mu- their music they also have this massive facet which is they're just like a really entertaining fun group of people that are just you want to yeah. be you want to be in their gang you know and you guys always said that you guys had that in droves and i thought that was really really important mm. if people don't like you they're not going to listen to what you're saying do you remember going into Studio A and Tricky was in it? How can I ever forget? So you go in, <laughs> you remember you had that big, it looked like wallpaper in the tables set up and it was just like, there was just a, about a 500 bottles of vitamins on it. He was just taking loads and loads and loads of vitamins and he was smoking like so much weed. And um, mm. remember the menu, the guy brought in this menu. Into, oh yeah. He's like, and I thought it was just for like food and stuff. I'm like, oh. And I'm like, are you serious? This is weed? Yeah, big kahuna. That's right, yeah. And I think (laughs) when when we met, um, when we met Tricky, I think he'd he'd smoked the menu. Yeah, he'd actually set like, he'd rolled it up and smoked it. (laughs) Yeah. Right. He'd done that thing, you know, when you go into Wendy's and they're like, if you can eat everything on the menu, you get a, (laughs) you win a car or something. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'll have that one and I'll have that one. Give me that one. Um, so that was cool. I, just all these little, and remember as well, like uh, the second time we went in, Remy Zero, the, our friends and Remy Zero were in. Were they? I don't remember that. You know what? It was the first session because they went in and we went in at the same time. They were working with Jack Joseph. Oh, they were mixing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And though they were, they weren't mixing. They were recording. Oh, really? And we had done in our two weeks that we spent there. I think we were there for two weeks. We'd recorded like five songs by the end of it. And by the end of it, they'd, they were still working on their snare sound mm. at the end of two weeks. But they were so frustrated. Mm. We were just like drilling through it. I think it's it's tough being in a band, you know, it's hard. What I remember about that, what was great about that room as well, was that it was very easy to work very quickly. And the other great thing about working with a band, in inverted commas, is that, you know, for example, when you do a backing track to a song like Sing, you just set everyone up and you play it and it sounds great. It's basically instant, you know? Yeah. So I remember recording that backing track and just like, in you know, hearing that. And it's just the kind of most pleasing version of doing the job, really. It's a bit like, you know, especially like having dragged you halfway across the planet to justify this thing. I'd be like, let's see. 
And you've got that bit of video, haven't you? I mean, I've seen it of mm-hmm. us doing the kind of backwards tubular bell stuff. You, those those tubular bells were in the studio for went for indefinitely. They they weren't yeah. in for they weren't in for sing. You right. brought them in for indefinitely, and then you were you, you, yeah. You were like you went oh wait, wait a minute because then we re- revisited sing on the second session. I mean, basically, it was sort of the back in, the backing track was done, and then it was sort of like one of those things where. You know, it was like sticking the banjo on it. You know, that was like one of the important things. It's a classic thing. We got getting the nailing the backing track thing was just really fun with that. Mm. And then also, I remember like having a lot of fun recording Dear Diary because it was like a, because it was such a nice, that was a skeleton, you know, that was one of the ones that you wrote in this when you were in LA and we came and recorded it in the second session. And it was, uh, yeah, because we should say that like, you know, what happened was, we actually, what happened, this is what I remember. We went back to London and we were working, we went to air and we did Pipe Dreams there. Oh, mm-hmm. it's one of my favorites that I think weirdly, but um, we, I think we just sort of were kind of in a bit of a funk because we'd been like, you know, in Technicolor land and then coming back to England, it was a bit like, oh yeah, mm. English, English, everything was a bit of a shyster. So we looked at you and I looked at each other and we like, should we go back to LA? But you went first yeah. to write and you rented a house. That's right. And you sat there in this empty house. I went to came I came to visit you when I got back and we had before we started. You were like sat there like some sort of guru, like half naked, just sat with one pit cushion and a guitar and like a little book. And you just sat there and written these songs. And it was like Dear Diary and Last Train and I can't remember what else. But um anyway, but the Dear Diary thing was really nice because it was like a sort of uh it was very kind of contrived in as much as I had a sort of it's I sort of knew how I wanted it to unfold and, mm. uh, you know, starting with the guitars and like building it up and all these kind of weird sort of sounds, you know, I mean, there's a lot of like little stoner stuff. I mean, not literally style. Like I wasn't stoned cause I you didn't do that. Can't get stoned, but other people may have been, I can't comment, but I listening back to it when I did, you know, that time when I hadn't heard it for ages, I sort of felt like there was a bit too much of that. It felt like, it sounded like I was stoned when I did it, but anyway. But on that particular <laughs> track, it it was it was it's quite beautiful, really. Like the way it kind of all these layered things kind of come in, and it was nice. So I remember recording that really well. I remember doing the kind of the sound where there was this grand piano that had this made this crazy noise when you put your foot on the sustain pedal. It was all the all the the hammers lifting off the strings at once, and it sounded like well a sort of weird kind of. I mean, you can hear it. It, on the record it, it just sort of like opens up the sustained kind of like almost like a reverb of something but we you know it's like because we're working on tape so we're screwing around so you know slide that down stuck it on be not afraid i've had the sort of pleasure of knowing a few photographers yeah but like photographers are they're they're so you're when you're out with a photographer like just walking around say in new york um they see that they, they'll they'll go oh god look at that and you'll yeah. be like oh my god there's like a, a pigeon on fire like, I, I would <laughs> yeah. never or you, you wouldn't have noticed it yeah yeah and, yeah and 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 they just they have the ability to see that their, their eyes yeah. are just somehow and i don't know what it is because i'm like i never see shit like that but it's all around you yeah but, but i think you we, we we tend to in our own ways in, in in a sensory way sleepwalk whether it's through our ears or through our eyes or, or our senses but you as a as a as a producer like for instance that thing that that noise that that piano made you just you, you heard that no one else heard that because you weren't listening for it but you're like oh my god 
And then that mm. became this huge part of, I mean, this tiny little noise that you, 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 that you hear becomes this huge, huge thing and imbues the personality of the sound into the song and creates this other thing. It's brilliant. Well, yeah, I, that was a very good impression of the sound, by the way, you just made. I always say it's like the difference between a poem and a song is like, when you, you know, words can mean so much, but when you put them with a melody and a note changes at a particular moment, it just like supercharges what's being said, you know? And I think that the same is true for some sort of versions of, you know, sonic tricks, you know? And sometimes when there's a sound that sort of makes you see something whilst a note is changing and a word is being said, you know, it sort of, again, augments it even further. And that's sort of like, that's the thing. It's like the magic of putting these sort of like weird kind of visual, very visual things. And then a lot, I mean, it's very visual for me. I think everyone has that synesthesia thing. I say, but I just, people don't really realize it. They're just, they're affected by it, but they're not realizing what's going on. But everybody hears, sees things that they hear. And all of our senses are kind of cross patched. That's why music videos work. You know what I mean? It's like, it's good to watch something whilst you're listening to something. I sort of feel like I kind of search for those things that can um, just augment, give it a little bit more of a kind of uh, power when there's a, there's a corner being turned or something. Can I ask a completely unrelated question, but just a total train spotter question. In your memory, what, like that thing that you've just described there, in your huge sort of canon of all the work you've ever done, what is there any one particular thing that you've, you've done that you've gone like, oh man, that's fucking, fucking yes. There's lyrics that I've written that I'm like, oh my God, that's beautiful. Like for instance, on the Invisible Band, time exists, but just on your wrist, don't panic, moments last, blah, blah, blah. That's a really, you know, I was proud of that. Not proud, it's because mm. it wasn't me that wrote, it just came. So what's your equivalent in your life, not in this album? Oh my God. Yeah, I mean, there's many things where I'm like, this is, I, I, I know that it's really great. I mean, the sort of everything in its right place, scrubbing voice, is oh. a, I'm like, this, you know, that's a good one. That's great. I'm like, this is something, I know this is good. I had this idea, I tried it, it worked really well. It sort of did the thing that I was hoping it would do. And I've never heard anything like it before, really. And it fitted the picture and... You know, it just worked really well. And it's like a super fucking, it's like the first thing you heard on that record. So it's like it resets a tone, you know. Like, I mean, I remember doing The Golden Age, the first song on Sea Change and just thinking, I mean, that was a day. Wow. We did it in a day and I was like, this is really good. I know it's really good. And there's a lot, I mean, I feel you have to be an enthusiast to be able to make a good judgment about what's the right thing to do, you know. I remember reading or listening to like, I think it was like Roger Taylor from Queen saying that, you know, the last thing you've done, you, you've done, you usually, you, you're, you think it's the best thing you've done and you should think it's the best thing you've done. You should be like really enthusiastic about what you're doing at the moment. Uh, because otherwise, you know, you can't be like, oh, this, is, this isn't as good as the last thing. I, you, you know, it's, it, you've got to get excited. So it's hard to gauge because there's, it, I'm always excited about things that I'm doing. I'm always excited. That's how you kind of move forward. But like, I think, you know, you can look back and sort of recognize that there's a few moments. I don't know. I mean, a lot of stuff in Radiohead I'm so proud of, you know, like, mm. um, you know, that daydreaming song. There's like all the sort of loops on that mm. and Moonshape Pool is just, it was like, I, I just felt like, just did a really just did a really good job yeah came together really well and you know i love the fucking i love that pavement record i did you know oh, 
it's like it's a good one but these are all things from like a long time ago but this is the weird thing Nigel you know you, you remember this that we'll die but when someone hears it I'm not going you might <laughs> let's just say I'm going to die but when yeah let's, let's suppose uh, but the the someone can come in like you said you went you saw pavement at the roundhouse and the audience were the audience were fresh. It's a fresh audience. It's like young young yeah. people, and yeah. music's a timeless fucking thing because it's what you hear yeah. that song for the first time and you're 16. Like a lot of kids, like uh, I was talking to a friend and they were like, they heard some song from like 20 years ago and they thought it was a new band. There's no narrative now. There's no like sort of. There's no top of the pops. There's no chart show. There's no. It's all. It's all really fucking convoluted. And I don't think that that's a good thing because if they don't know the difference between like a guitar based a guitar band from now or twenty years ago. I mean, maybe that's like, oh, isn't this cool? But I think music is has a timeless quality to it. And then when you discover a song, you unearth it like a you know like a paleontologist digging up a bone and going, oh my god, and being just as excited as. You know, when, when Kid A starts, you play it to someone. I lo- One of my favourite things is you, know, you play something to someone, that you a song that you love, and you know they've never heard it, and you just watch them as they hear it for the first time. Just like when we played songs in the studio, you know, when people come in, and yeah. you just sit, you go, this is, they were like, this is going to be good. Yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, having said all this stuff, I would say when I was a teenager, I was listening to music from... 20 25 years before that you know i just listened to pink floyd and hendrix and zeppelin and the beatles and the stones so that's what i was you know so you know it is timeless i do think i'm an old fogey so i think things are getting more repetitive and homogenized and that's just my i think i don't think that's because i'm actually saying i'm an old, old fogey as a kind of pre um I'm apologising for something that I'm not sorry about because I don't really think it's because I'm an old fogey. I do think that things have become more homogenised. By the way, just as an aside, I was watching this BBC documentary series from the 50s. It's the first time they sort of really had a kind of like face-to-face, like talking heads kind of interview programme. And it's called Face to Face, actually. <laughs> it was like a big thing that was really weird to sort of sit behind somebody's shoulder and like see them interviewing somebody else. It's great because it has like, you know, old, it has like Victorians on it. <laughs> so one of the, you know, like older people, some of the people that are interviewed are just like really old, like uh, are, you know, lived in another cent- two centuries ago or whatever. Yeah. One of the people, one of the people was on it was Carl Jung. And I was like, watching Carl Jung like on a chat show, basically. And him being sort of like asked all these questions and they were asking him about being older because he was like, you know, approaching the end of his life because obviously he's been around for a long time asking about Freud and like, you know, so what's Freud like then, you know, that sort of thing. It was really kind of cool. But then one of the things they talked about, what he talked about was how we should sort of think about ourselves towards the end of our lives as we're older. Like, should we sort of think about things finitely? He said, and he said, absolutely not. You should just carry on assuming that you're going to live forever because there's no point in doing anything else. That's the healthiest, most kind of logical solution to aging and your own mortality. And I just thought, he's right. Wow. And thought about that. Anyway, there you go. But it is also weird being older and having things sort of thrown at you again, like things that you did 20 years ago. It's, it's, it's odd because it does make you sort of consider like where you were in your life at the time and how you've changed and we don't fundamentally change as people but we are 
we sort of go down various rabbit holes, don't we? And a record is a really good example of recognizing where you were at that moment because I can remember all the decisions I made and remember what it, it, it sort of brings a lot of that stuff back. Like maybe other people could look look at pictures or look at things they've made in their life or something like that. But just right now, I was just sort of saying to Josh before he was uh, helping with the podcast, so I was just saying how weird it is because there does seem to be a kind of culture of retrospect. And I said that to you at the beginning here. It's like everything seems to be backwards looking. So when you're trying to busily just work on what you're doing at the moment, people keep on frigging remind you about stuff you did in the past, which sort of <laughs> wrong foots you a little bit sometimes. But um, it's also quite it's quite pleasing to go back and listen to something and it being like a real, it's like a seaside postcard from youth. You do this thing and as you travel away from it in time, you're. it's like it remains in the past, but it also follows you. It's like... Uh, what is it called? Spooky thing, spooky movement at distance, or something. What was it called that Einstein thing? I don't know. Spooky movement at distance. Yeah, that's that what I'm good. thinking of calling the new record. Yeah, it's like um, it's when two uh, two things when you disturb one atom, the other one oh, okay. happens yeah. simultaneously. Yeah, and you're what you, it follows you, and yet it stays in the past. The other thing I should say is that somebody it's that absolutely and this is a true true truism is that once you're done from in my line of work once you finish something you never listen to it again no you do it and you move on and you're only thinking and listening about the thing that you're doing at that time so then for people to sort of like throw stuff back at you from like 20 years it is quite sort of like oh wow but it's nice because you really do have perspective for the first time so you can listen to it yeah and hear what it is and i'm like oh I'm like, oh, I'm just, I love those guys. I'm just reminded of it and what a mm -hmm. lovely experience it was making it and what an important time in our lives for all of us it was and how it was the springboard for a lot of, not change, but like a kind of like the beginning of our lives as adults, really, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that we grew a lot in that time. We were in a very kind of open, eye opening time. Yeah. And now, look, you live there, you know. I live in Italy. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, that's a sort of, I would say that it's a, some sort of like byproducts, maybe of some vibration that maybe was started back then. Maybe, I don't know if that's totally true, but you know, there's definitely some part of that, surely. Well, yeah, it's weird because I, I sort of lived when I moved near and you did as well. Uh, area where we're around the studio sort of near like 10 minutes away from it you know we we sort of we, we pitched our tent where we landed yeah. and I've, I've sort of six years later moved down the hill a little bit and and um mm. to to the out of the hills but um yeah ellie's god you know it's a different city now of course and and that studio is now a different name it's not ocean way anymore it's what's it called now national it's called Uni united, united which is what it was called before actually it was originally united wow. recorders yeah yeah gosh but, i mean it's basically the same that's what's nice about that room is it's exactly the same it's got a lino floor from the 50s and you know it hasn't really changed so is the um one of the things just that i think folk might be interested in is that that particular studio the microphones i remember the microphones were like crazy good you know like you had they had such great equipment for yeah, recording exactly. yeah like you had two c12 c12s over the drum they were the overhead mics for the drum kit <laughs> like what the fuck yeah i would never do that now no terrible idea but what happened to me anyway is just basically i had i was very ambitious and i once things started going well for me in my career, I knew that I wanted to work in America. So I sort of made a conscious effort to find a way to do something there. I was being offered a lot of things. And one of the things that came to me was this guy, Jason Faulkner, who is a sort of like singer-songwriter power pop 
kind of thing. And he uh, was amazing. I had this amazing experience going off and working with him in New Orleans. And then he was from Los Angeles. So we went and finished in LA. Wow. And uh, it sort of started me on this road because while I was out there, I met uh, Beck and we just had a little tryout. And I um, found myself in that particular room with Beck because we couldn't get into another room that I was trying to get into that I'd worked with with Jason. But what had happened was my experience of America generally as a sort of somebody who works in the studio was that I was used to things not working in English studios, <laughs> equipment not working and like people being a bit moody and like it just being a, like I had to, you have to work hard, you know, to get stuff to anyway. And then I got to the States and literally every piece of gear and every room I went into, it was like the best of the best and everything you reach for was the best version of that thing that it mm. was. And then I discovered lots of things that I'd never seen before and bits of equipment and instruments I'd never seen before. And just had this real amazing the positive experience working here and also just the people were just so i mean they're so goddamn positive which was a real factor in everything that that's why i was sort of it's like i found this thing that nobody knew about you know it was so ridiculous it was like my little secret i'm like franny we got to go to this place and we should work there that's why we went out there and it was sort of so you probably by osmosis were just feeling the same experience having the same experience mm -hmm. it's like everything is so taken care of and you know that's that's a nice thing about la i mean it's still like that it was a bit more like the music business has changed now but back then it was like yeah you know real culture of quality in studios and stuff remember going in the first week you were like right let's go shopping and we were like what i i you were like, let's just go and find some music shops and just find some weird shit to just to play on. And yeah. so we went out and we bought all these weird things. We went to Black Market, which is no longer there anymore. And they had this like, you know, these kind of electronic tamboras, which is like boxes that make like drones. And they had like, you know, synthesizers that you can't get anywhere else. You know, like things that I'd sort of seen and knew about, but I'd never actually touched. And, you know, it was great. We just went out and bought a few, just to kind of, because when you're having when you're in a studio and you have new equipment it always you get a certain kind of amount of like inspiration and mileage out of something you know even a piano you know can just like make you write a song you know what i mean i yeah. like a nice piano you know what i mean yeah so and certainly like a guitar will make you write in a certain way so you know i was like let's get a few fun things do you remember the guitar shop amp i remember looking and finding the krumar and all those kind of things in the tampura tampura tambura but that there was one shop and the guy pulls out this almost like perfect guitar case from the from the 50 40s or something puts it on the ground opens it up and picks out this guitar and it was he's like it had this amazing um history of being played by i don't know i don't know like eddie cochran yeah. or one of these things and yeah. while he's while he's showing us it he had this little baby goat did you remember that like the guy had a goat <laughs> A baby goat. He had a goat as a pet goat in his in his house, yeah. in his shop. And while he was giving us the whole spiel on this, like he's like, oh, and it, and it, it was like I remember it being really expensive, like it was like a twenty five thousand yeah. dollar guitar. And while he's yeah. while he's while he's showing us it, the goat is in the guitar case, which has meant never been touched, and it just takes the biggest piss in the guitar. <laughs> get the fuck out i don't remember that i remember that guy and i remember the shop mm -hmm. all those shops are gone basically i mean I ebay know. destroyed that market you know and now there's like yeah. really classic thing there's like very very expensive websites that you can buy stuff i mean a jupiter rates like 
it's insane. It's like 30 grand now. What? Yeah, it's ridiculous. Go and have a look at Reverb. You just be, you won't believe. Wow. And then go around and look around your house, what you got in the corners. You might be sitting on a gold mine. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Talk House podcast, and thanks to Fran Healy and Nigel Godrich for chatting. If you liked what you heard, please follow Talk House on your favorite podcasting and social media platforms. This episode was produced by Myron Kaplan, and as always, the Talk House theme is composed and performed by The Range. See you next time.